Um, 1 Thessalonians 2.8, I think, is back on the screen. And uh, it's speaking of a life-on-life ministry that Paul had amongst the, the Thessalonians. And I was, as I was thinking through this, this, really this theme, this thread that's been woven uh, throughout the uh, fall semester and into the spring, and I've been thinking about what to preach on, what to share with you guys, what would be impactful and um, one of the, the things that I've thought about over and over and over and over again is, is uh, and probably too much at times, is what is God doing with my life? Where am I going? What is the purpose of my life, the, the individual? And as I've uh, turned inward on that question, the irony of it is, is I don't know what I'm doing. The, the more I look inward, I can't see really where to go and what to do next. But as God has worked in my life, if I could share something with you this morning, the more I come out of myself, the more, that, the more I face him, the more I come outward, the clearer life becomes, the more meaningful life becomes, the more purpose is there, the, the more uh, there's, there's clarity, there's direction, there's, there's vision, we use words like that. So I thought about that this morning and wanted to take you to where we could see someone else's life, not mine, but someone who I uh, definitely would look up to. And I think you all would agree as well that the Apostle Paul would, would have much to offer us regarding direction, regarding purpose, regarding his ministry, what to do with our life. And the reason I want to bring this up this morning is you're here, most of you are 18 to 20-something years old. And you're on the front end of life. And life is full of distraction, as you well know. It's full of option, full of decision making, um, plenty to really sort through and figure out what you want to do. And so that's why I want to bring this topic to you. I probably wouldn't be bringing this topic to a group of senior saints, although it could be applicable. Uh, my burden is for you, the college student, because you're on the front end of life. I don't know if you've ever thought much about foundations. Kind of a weird subject to start off with. Have you ever thought about foundations? The Probably not. The foundation you're sitting on right now, you're not thinking about that. Those of you who live in the dorms, you're not thinking about the foundation when you go to your room. You're not thinking about the foundation as you eat in the cafeteria. You're not thinking about the foundations really ever. Remember drawing pictures as a kid, like the house picture, the classic house picture? Did anybody ever draw the foundation underneath? You didn't draw a foundation. You drew a tree next to it, right? And maybe a sun, and that's for, for science and real artists someday. Uh, but the, the, you, never, you never drew anything more than the house, right? You didn't think about a foundation. You don't think about foundations really ever. They're just there. They're just something you rely on, you trust in. You assume that they're there, but you don't really ever think about it. I know, uh, think back to my, some of my past construction days, I hated foundations. I hated foundation work. It was hard. Everything was heavy that, that dealt with foundations. It was long. It was laborious. It was very sweaty work. It was dirty. 
uh, it was, and it just wasn't at the end, the end of your day when you're working on foundations, there just wasn't a ton to show for it. You're like, what do we do today? We just put some boards in place and, and I can't see anything still. When I step back, I can't see anything. But obviously, uh, foundations are essential. You trust in them. We, we rely on them every day. We think about the foundations that shape our country or the foundations that shape this institution, the, the, the foundation that's underneath a good church. What are the ingredients for that? What, what makes up a significant or essential theological foundation? And I want to look at what shaped Paul's ministry, what shaped his life. And I've titled my sermon, A Godward Life Today. But really what it's about is digging underneath what helped Paul's, let me say it this way, what, what made Paul stable in life? Because that's something I, I remember being your age and, and thinking like, I'm on very shaky ground here. I don't know what's next. I don't know really what I'm relying on. I don't have a lot of vision out there. I would look at my roommates and my wingmates and be like, how does this guy know from like birth that he wants to do this? Or how is she so compelled to to move in that direction. I was always kind of like, eh, I, don't, I don't know what I'm doing. So to look at what made up Paul's life has been very helpful to me over the years. And instead of thinking about what's out there, is to think about who is underneath my foundation. Instead of thinking about all the fun stuff of construction, all the, all the uh, things that make us want to be more ambitious and, and all the things we want to do in life, my goal this morning is that it, this would help you lay a foundation on the inside so that what Austin talked about on Wednesday might actually come to fruition, that we would not drift, that, these, that this foundation would endure. Summer and I uh, have an office over in, in King Hall, and we, we always, well, she, her, her desk is on the other side of the wall, and mine faces this way, so I... Actually, I list to the right in King Hall, and she kind of tilts to the left in King Hall because somebody didn't do enough homework, or maybe that building's just too old. But that foundation is is crumbling day by day. And it's like, you know that building? Your office kind of shaky foundation. Um, so I'm leaning there. I literally, sometimes I can, not I can notice it, you know, when I set like chapstick or a pencil there and it rolls to the right. Foundations, I think we would all agree, are not that fascinating, but they're essential. So I want to look at that this morning. So turn, if with you, turn with me to 2 Corinthians, where we get to see what I've come to find is what, if we just narrow it down to four, four theological footings, I'm going to call them, that helped established Paul's life. It helped him move through life. In this section, we're going to just, we're going to scan chapters one through five and, and boil down what are the common themes. What keeps popping off the page? What did Paul keep returning to? And you see this cyclical theme in, in 2 Corinthians is he'll start with, with a theme and then he'll, he'll leave it alone and he'll pick it up and he'll leave it alone and he'll pick it up and you see that all throughout 2 Corinthians. What made up his sure footing in life? And 
in these first five chapters, actually, it's, it's so interesting because you might think, oh, let's find out about Paul, like a good documentary or a good biography. It's intended to drill down and say, who, the, who is this guy? What made up this woman? What, what made her this way? And we, we, we're intrigued by story and documentary and five, ten-part series on one person or one group of people. As we're trying to get down underneath and say, who were these people really? What made them do the things they do? Even there's a strange fascination, fascination with the way Hitler thought or Stalin thought. You look on uh, Netflix and you can find a bajillion hours of those kinds of uh, programs that help you understand what the processing was or what the thinking was that was uh, just co uh, common in Nazi Germany and who was driving it, Hitler. There's a fascination with that. But as the more you study first or 2 Corinthians 1 through 5, what really started to stand out to me was that God is mentioned or Christ or the Lord or any kind of reference to our God or the pronoun was mentioned over a hundred times in the first five chapters. Paul is actually mentioned very little in the personal pronoun and his name itself. But God, the Spirit, our Lord, Jesus Christ, him, himself, all of that is mentioned over a hundred times. It's fascinating to me. That even though it was his life, it was about, it was about them. So I want to just give you four, four of these footings this morning that I hope will help you as a young man or a young woman to navigate life. So first of all, I want to look at chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Actually, back up to verse 8. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. That's the first one, is that back in verse 9, you see, he describes God as what? The God who raises the dead. The God who raises the dead. I don't know how many times I've read past that and just thought nothing twice, no, no, nothing much of, not even thought twice of a God who raises the dead. And I want to slow us down this morning. And I want you personally, not corporately here, but think individually. I want you to think about that. I want you to think about dying. And to ask yourself if your God your God your personal your, the God you worship can he raise you from the dead I'm sure you believe that God raises people from the dead or that God raised Christ from the dead but can God raise you from the dead Paul got there early on in his ministry actually that was the first thing that he dealt with in ministry there was no ministry to Paul if Christ hadn't been raised. And he's already worked through this issue with them from in 1 Corinthians. Fl flip back a, a couple of pages to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He actually argues, we're wasting our entire lives. This is, this is utter futility if Christ has not been raised from the dead. 
Look at 15, verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So that was circulating in the Corinthian church. Verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. That's a powerful statement from the Apostle Paul, setting straight this heresy, actually, that was going through the Corinthian church, saying there is no resurrection from the dead. It has to start there. And so Paul, Paul basically argues from the greater to the lesser. And you see this in Romans chapter 8 as well. If God killed Christ, okay, that's the worst thing he could ever do to Christ. And that's the best thing he could ever give to us. If he killed Christ, then certainly he's able to give us all things. That's what he's arguing here. Is that if God can raise the dead, back to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, if, if, if my life, my beginning, my purpose starts with, the de- with, with death being dead, with the grave being overcome, it suddenly frees my life up to be as ambitious as I could possibly think of being. But if there's this nagging question in my mind that the grave is not really taken care of, at least for me, then it's going to throw me off. It's going to really hinder me and shackle me all through life. And I remember this. I remember this in, in high school. I remember this in college, sitting right here as a student in Master's College. I remember this even going into ministry at times when my theology was still at a point where when I was working through weakness or a sin issue in my life, my immediate thought was, I must not be saved. And it was either in or you're out. There was no progressive sanctification. It was just, you're in and you got it and you don't struggle with things, or you're not saved at all. And I had to get to the point where, where I knew that, okay, wait a second here. If Christ was killed for me, if God put him to death, then certainly he's going to give me all things in Christ. But I, I knew that, I would say I believed that, but I did not lean on that. I didn't trust in that. He put his, he put his faith in God as, as one of the most, if not the most, essential ingredients in the foundation that was before him. And I would challenge you this morning, ask yourself that question. Do you know, of course you know you're going to die, but have you dealt with that? Have you stared death in the face and said, I'm, not that you're looking forward to it, Not that dying is an enjoyable thing. Not that the process itself is something to be celebrated. But do you know that that there's life after death for you? Are you convinced of that? I want to look elsewhere where this theme emerges in chapter 5. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 1 through Let's skip down to chapter, or I'm sorry, verse 5 of chapter 5. 
He who has prepared us for this very thing, speaking of inheriting a new body, is God, who has given us his spirit as a guarantee. Verse 6. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. It's an amazing statement by the Apostle Paul. I would rather be there than here. I would rather be with Christ than without him. And I ask you this morning, is there something that is holding you back? We sang about it this morning. Haste me on from, to, to, to glory. And come thou fount of every blessing. Haste me. Like move me. Get me from this life to the next. Paul was excited to go see Christ. And I remember at certain times I was like, why am I not excited to go to heaven? Why do I think heaven's going to be boring? Have you ever thought that? Like, what are we going to be doing in heaven? What's, what, like, what's going to occupy our time? Paul couldn't wait to be there with, with his Lord. So for you to have complete confidence moving through life, I press on your conscience this morning to deal with death first because it's a, it's a, a joyless slavery to attempt to move through life without that confidence, without that surety, without that part of the foundation laid for you. Once that's locked into place, once you truly believe that for you, it's amazing to move through life with confidence. I want to turn to a second point, and that is very general. It's, it's everywhere, but I had to boil it down to something, and that is number two, that Paul, first of all, Paul knew that his death was secure, his life was secure, but second, Paul knew that his ministry was from God, about God, and for God. Paul knew that life was about God and not himself. And I know that sounds so simple. Because it, it really is simple. But it is so complex when you put it down here on earth and that we think through and we're sorting through all the things that come at us, all the options all the desires that we have that come from within, that are pressed from without, it is so easy to make life, even as a believer, not about God. We do it constantly. We do this thing every day. Notice in 2.17, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak Christ. He knows his commission is from Christ. Look at 3.6. Speaking of God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Look down at 4.1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God. And then flip over to 5.18 and 19. All of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. God knew that his source, or Paul knew that his source was God. Paul knew that the beginning of his ministry was God, it was from God, it was through God, and it was back to God. And I think of that from a, a, 
a personal standpoint as well. Again, do you know that God has called you? Again, put your name where Paul's name would be. Do you know that God has called you? Do you know that God has your name accounted for? I think of that, that passage in Jeremiah 1 where he's calling Jeremiah, and he says, before you were in the womb, I knew you. I knew you by name, Jeremiah. Before I've called you to do this work amongst your people, I knew your name. That's a very important uh, phrase there. Not just, hey, I knew about you. I knew what you're going to do for me. It was, I know your name, Jeremiah. I know your name. Paul knew his source. He was commissioned by God's mercy. He also knew what the subject was of his ministry. It wasn't just about him. It wasn't about just whatever he wanted to talk about. Life wasn't about what he wanted to do. Life wasn't about what he was skilled at, what he was best at. What made him the most comfortable? Life was about speaking Christ. That is all throughout the, these, these chapters. But I just want to point you to Second uh, Corinthians 4, verse 5. Go back to chapter 4. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Christ, for Jesus' sake. Why would Paul say that? Because the temptation and what the Corinthians were seeing in their church, in these false apostles who would come through, was exactly that. A ministry, a ministry that was about self. Not just a, 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 any, any kind of life, but a, a, a ministry type of life that was done for self. And Paul refused, Paul refused to fall into this. He says back in 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 1, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul determined, he says later on in 1 Corinthians, that he wasn't going to do anything but preach the power of Christ. Christ was the subject. Christ was always the topic. Christ was the... Christ was the, um, the, the desire where he went. He didn't default to talking about himself. He defaulted to speaking of Christ and speaking of Christ. He also knew its power. Look at back in chapter 3. We're kind of going backwards now to comb back through here. Chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. It wasn't about him and it wasn't in his power such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. If you want an interesting study later on, just comb through these chapters and see how Paul argues and then uses the word but and puts something else on the other side of the column. These, these, these things are everywhere. We, don't, we, we, we proclaim Christ, not ourselves. We're not sufficient in ourselves, but we're sufficient in God. Every time he's turning it away from himself and saying it's actually not about us at all. Suffering's not about us. Death is not about us. The message isn't about us. It's about Christ. And we have his power 
in this moment. We could go on, I think, for sake of time, we'll, we'll, we'll shorten, but I just want to point out one other thing, and that is that he left the results to God. This is an interesting thing that Paul was sure of. Go, keep going backwards, up, up to 2.14 through 16. 2.14 through 16. He says, but thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved. And, this is important, and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Isn't that amazing? That when he preached, Paul knew that the message would hit those who had ears to hear. And that would move them from life to life. But he also knew that the word of God would cut and move other people from death to death. And that he was able to move through life and move through ministry and say hard things because he knew God's word was meant and intended to do that. And I think that's where we get crossed up sometimes in, in our, our, just our, our boldness, our confidence, or uh, maybe it's evangelism, maybe it's with one another, is we're so worried about the result that we fail to even take the first step. We're trying to figure out how God will work, whether it's death to death or life to life, rather than just speaking the word as Paul did. The, the confidence, he didn't have the confidence in like, this. every time I speak in this way, it's going to have this result from life to life. This will always produce fruit in people's lives. He knew that when he spoke to believers, it would move from life to life. But he also knew as he was faithful to charge people, even those in the Corinthian church, and it's evident throughout this letter that he knew that there was a good group of people in this church that claimed to be believers who were not. So he knew that as God's word was preached, it would, it would divide and it was meant to do that. And he was not afraid of that. Paul's ministry was from God, it was about God, and it was for God. I want to ask you about your life. What is your life going toward? If we're speaking of a God-word life, what, what is out there? Just think about your horizon. Think about your future. What's out there for you? And is it about God or is it about you? I think my story is, is definitely marked by this. And questioning, what am I supposed to do with my life? Why am I here at college? What, what's my major, what is my major again? Um, that, that was something I was thinking through in my freshman, sophomore year, and God continued to grow me, and I, I think I, I, I lived a lifestyle, and maybe I should ask somebody about it. Maybe I should read a book about it. Oh, I know what it is. Um, I, I, I need to have the best paying job. I think I want to get married. No, I, I think it's more about a satisfying job. No, it's the most creative job. There's so many options. You know, um, I want to live here. I want to experience this. I want to do that. I'm interested in this. I'm interested in that. I, I, there's so many options. I, what am I doing? So much confusion when there's no author to tie the story all together. 
let me, let me tell you, college student, if it's something on earth, if your goals are something that can burn, something that's temporal, something you can see, it's not high enough. Your goals are not high enough. It has to be something higher than yourself, higher than others, higher than church, higher than fellowship, higher than community, higher than doing the right thing, higher than anything you can see. It has to be above that. It has to be about God, from God, to God. I want you to, I want to be clear on this. I'm not saying, all right, never want to be quoted as saying, all right, you need to drop what you're doing and pursue full-time ministry. Sometimes either because of the way I'm communicating that or the way we assume things is that is what you think I'm saying. And that's not what I'm saying. The idea here is to lay your ambitions out before God and say, God, you prioritize my ambitions. And if that happens to be the ministry, great. If it doesn't happen to be the ministry, great. But at least you know that you've laid it all out and you've said, God, I'm doing what you want to do. And you take me wherever you want to go into whatever field you want me to be in. Instead of saying, I want God, but I really want to hang on to this Taylor Swift and put my interest above, above here. You know, it, you can do that. You can do that. You can have your priorities. You can have your ambitions. You can, you can seek something here. But believe me, you, you'll have the car in gear. Your foot will be on the gas, but you'll be spinning your wheels. You'll get nowhere in life. And I think of that verse in uh, Psalms 127, I believe, that says, unless the Lord builds the house, what's happening? The laborers, the laborer toils in vain. And he says, unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman watches over it in vain. So there's watching going on, there's building going on, but it doesn't matter. It's all in vain. I know you know myself we want to make our lives about something that matters we really do but it won't unless we take up Christ's command in Matthew 6 33 he says seek first the kingdom all right and then all these things are going to come into place if you're trying to sort all these things that are out of place into place believe me it'll never happen for you unless you lay it all down and say it's Christ first it is Christ first. Even if you think you want to go into the ministry, it's Christ first. Whatever you want to do, whatever you want to do, if it's not Christ, nothing will fall into place. But things obviously did for Paul. Not because he was awesome. I just don't want you to hear me saying that this morning. It's not because Paul was awesome. And it's not because Paul figured it out. It's because he made his life toward God and for God, for his purposes. I want to bring out a third point, and that is something that Paul often experienced, and it keeps coming up in 2 Corinthians. It really is probably the, one of the major themes of 2 Corinthians, and that is he knew that his suffering was for God's glory. Paul knew that his suffering was for God's glory. He had to suffer but it was to God he received the glory. 
Back in chapter 1, verse 9, we looked at it briefly, but he says this, and I love this statement from the Apostle Paul. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Literally, felt like I was under a death sentence. I was in a walking, living death sentence in life. What was the point of all that? But this was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. This was to make us not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul was not sufficient. You are not sufficient. I am not sufficient. You don't have enough capabilities. You don't have enough power. You don't have enough talent. You don't have enough desire. You don't have enough time to just move through suffering and it be about you or move through life and it be about you. God's power was perfected in Paul's weakness. You see that at the end. You can, you can look at that chapter late, later, but it's in verse 12 where he expands on that. And this is Paul's point, and we'll get to it in, in, in chapter 4 here. I want to look at something. But the idea is this. Unless God layers something on your life or layers something on my life that presses us out of ourselves, guess what cannot happen? God cannot receive glory. If you say you, God does not receive glory. So how does God do that? He will bring something to make you not rely on yourself, but on God who raises the dead. Look at verse 7 of chapter 4. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay. Nothing glorious. We just have it in jars of clay. Why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. So that the life of Jesus may also, may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Those purpose clauses are essential in this passage. What is all this about? Look at it. Verse 7. To show the surpassing power that belongs to God. Down in verse 10, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. Then he explains it further. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Again, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So that. Guys, trials isn't about you. And often I think we start there. We start with this idea that says, oh, Here's a challenge. I was taught to work through my challenges. They're not obstacles. They're opportunities. I'm supposed to move through them. I'm supposed to go over them or plow through them or whatever. I need to work my way through this trial, whatever it might be. We often think that's what makes a successful life is 
knowing who we are, gathering up all of our talents and interests, and then like living the life we really want or that dream, whatever that is. That's what our high school speeches were about, right? Our high school graduation speeches. You, you got enough in yourself, live your dreams, you can do anything, whatever you want. Nothing could be further from the truth, right? Paul saw the purpose in trials. It wasn't to do great things for God, all right? Let me just address that for a second. It's not, life isn't about you going out and being great, okay? Most of life is not about being great, as a matter of fact. Life is about what happens when it isn't great and your response to that. That's what Paul is addressing here. It wasn't about doing great things for God. And, and that sometimes that has the idea of almost like seeking the crown while we're on earth rather than seeking and knowing that we're going to have a cross on earth, not a crown. If Jesus wasn't about getting a crown at his first appearance, neither should we think that we're going to have a life that's not like his, right? A servant is not greater than his master. If anything, we're all following Christ to the grave, dying little by little, suffering little by little. But Paul knew his purpose. Paul knew his purpose, and that what, that's what made sense out of trials. That's why he knew he could suffer. It wasn't because he was awesome, and he could just grin and bear it, and he could get through it. The whole point of it was, if, if I don't if I'm not perplexed, if I'm not pushed down, if I'm not driven to despair, God's glory cannot come through me. God cannot receive glory if he stays hidden. He stays hidden when I, nothing is pushed out of me. Nothing is squeezing my life. That's what gave him this endurance. We see it later on in chapter Four. Look down at 16. So we do not lose heart. Why doesn't he lose heart? Well, because he knows the point of trials. He knows it's for God's glory. We just mentioned that in verse 15. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I would challenge you, student, learn, learn now from Paul's suffering what it's about, so that as you face this, and you will, and you are probably even now, as you face this, your, your ability to give God glory increases rather than decreases. As you allow God, as James 1 says, as you allow God to layer that trial upon you and you remain under it and you stay there, God will form the faith in you. God will expose that faith that is already in you. That's what he knew suffering was meant to show. It's not to show, listen to this, trials and suffering was never to show 
how great Paul was. Do you remember uh, that, that the, the, the story of his shipwreck in Acts 26 and 27? Uh, it's not about, that's not about Paul, all right? That's not about Paul. What that's about is the God who guards Paul, the God who will keep Paul. Number four, moving on. Number four, this is a, thinking of, thinking of things that will clear your plate, all right? The best advice, the best I've ever received, seriously, the best, the best I've ever received in life, um, yeah, yeah, thanks, is, that, is this, and it's the advice I still receive, and that is when you have a hundred options or a hundred things floating in your mind, and someone comes along and helps you reduce it down to ten. Or better yet, you have ten things that are floating through your mind or ten ways you could see something or ten whatever decisions to make and someone helps you refine it down to one. That's really helpful in life. <laughs> it's really helpful when you know what your aim is and what your target is and who you're trying to please. All right? That's number four is Paul knew that his labor was judged by God. Paul knew that his labor was judged by God. I want to look quickly at chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 9. We left off in verse 8, but pick it up in verse 9. So whether we are at home or at way, we make it our aim to please him. Paul's sole aim in life was that God would be pleased at the end of the day. Even though he knew he was saved, death had been conquered, grace had been given. But look, what, look what's next. What keeps, what keeps Paul in the hot seat? What's helpful for Paul to know in order not to drift into assumed grace? What we would call is antinomianism caring less about what God's law says. What helps him stay, in, stay there? Look at verse 10. Why do we make it our aim to please him? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Let me say that again. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Wow. So even though Paul was saved, even though Paul knew he would see his risen Lord, there's a judgment. There's going to be a courtroom at the end of life. If you want to write this down, write down 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 17. You don't have time to look at it, but he basically repeats that. He's repeating this over. Actually, he's already stated it in 1 Corinthians. And that is, we got to be careful how we build on Christ the foundation because at the end, he said it's going to be exposed to fire and what is actually valuable will remain. And that is why Paul built the way he built. That's why he lived the way he lived. That's why he ministered the way he ministered 
was because he knew his labor was going to be judged by God. And I would remind you, especially this generation of students, I don't know what it is. I, I, maybe I just, I'm, I'm reading this in evangelicalism or I, I hear this in speech or it's that we have forgotten that even though God has been gracious to us and he saved us and we're secure, that somehow now we just kind of can do our thing in a, in a godly way, but there's nothing, there's nothing after that. Almost an ignorance that there's a judgment to come, that there's still an accountability for life. And he says that Christian will actually be saved through the fire, but things will be wor- just be burnt up if that life is worthless. That's a, that's, a, that's a compelling thought to make it our aim to please him in everything that we do. I want to end with this. You, we've talked about, or you've probably heard this subject come up, and that is the idea of people-pleasing. We all have a people-pleaser inside of us. We're all tempted to do that. But what will help free you from that is that when you know that God is greater to be feared than anybody around you, it unlocks saying, look, I've appealed to the highest court. There's nothing else that I need to appeal to. And it creates an openness and a freedom in life that is, I should say, healthy or joyful to the conscience. And that's why Paul could say several times, that I serve Christ, I minister in sincerity, and I serve with a clear conscience. I know you want a clear conscience. And Paul was uninhibited by a guilty conscience because he lived his life in the presence of God. Once you, student, lay that down and say, I'm living my life in the presence of God, there's not a whole lot else to worry about. It really becomes freeing. Let me end with this statement here. This is by a a commentator named George Guthrie. He writes, in short, Paul's profound godwardness stems from God being the source, the primary audience, and the ultimate goal for all the apostle is and does. Before God, he lives out and preaches the gospel from God, ministering and suffering for God to bring about reconciliation between God and people, all to God's glory. Student, I hope that you see the, the, sure, foundations aren't very fancy. Theological roots are hardly seen. But I think you would agree with me that they, they are essential. They are essential. Let's pray this morning. Father, we're established in you. You've overcome the grave so that we need not fear. Lord, you've given us purpose to see through trial and not just endure it. And God, we we know that you shape our entire life. You give purpose and meaning to, to all. And Lord, I pray that we would. We would live our lives in your presence and free us to serve you even today, even as we move into our weekend, as we live our life here in your presence, that Lord, as we serve you theologically, free shape the way we uh, the way we see the world. Pray this in Jesus name.